Well, good morning. And we want to welcome you here this morning. We want to welcome you that are joining us live stream. And if you're joining us live stream, this is a communion service. So if you can grab a cracker or a little bit of grape juice or whatever you have for juice, that would be really, really great. And I know that it's been streaming and telling you that this is a communion service. So hopefully you're prepared. You know, as we uh, celebrate this moment, this is really the focal point of our entire lives. We're really focusing in on who Jesus is, and uh, that's why we gather. We would not be here if it were not for him. We would not be here if he had not died and given his life for us and brought us into a a reconciled relationship with the Father. So when we do this, we actually do this about nine times a year, the second Sunday of every month, except for a few in the summer, and I think December is another one we miss. But generally speaking, this is an important moment. I want to read from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. For I received from the Lord, but I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you and I now, Uh, have come into a covenant relationship with God. What a beautiful thing that is. And God promises us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We just sang it, you don't have to be alone. We're in union with him. And all of the benefits of this amazing salvation can be received by him. And Jesus took bread that night when he broke it. He said, this is a symbol. This, This represents what I'm doing for you. I'm breaking my life. My life will be broken so that you can have life. So Father, thank you for your gift, the greatest gift that was ever shown to us. You expressed uh, your forgiveness and your love and your mercies to us when we least deserved it. And Lord, our hearts are warmed by that. Our lives have been transformed by that. And now we pray today as we partake of this uh, emblem that represents the your life that was given for us. I pray now that we would receive all the benefits of our, of our salvation, from eternal life to divine healing to your grace in so many other areas. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're making a declaration today. I know I say that often, but it's important. We're declaring that, number one, Jesus Christ is alive. Because you can't tell me he's coming back if he's dead. He rose from the dead. He's ruling and reigning. And one day he will rule and reign over all creation, all rebellion will be set aside. Are you looking forward to that day? No more rebellion, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more dying, no more tears. Wow. That's what we're all looking forward to. And so, Father, I thank you for this uh, beautiful uh, moment where we're standing in your presence, seated, seated in your presence. Lord, I pray right now as we receive of this emblem, that represents your shed blood, that brought us into a new covenant, uh, an eternal covenant, a covenant that you have kept your end of the bargain, and we thank you for that. Now, Lord, may you give us grace to keep ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink together. So let's just uh, hang on to these little cups. 
And after the service, if you could just take them and drop them off, there's going to be a dispensary there. You can drop them off in. That's great. I'm going to have you stand this morning. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to be looking again at the book of Jeremiah. I'm going to wish uh, all of you that I didn't say to it last year, uh, last year for some of you, Happy New Year. And uh, I'm just going to pray that this year is going to be a great year. Can we just believe God? He's going to do great things in this year. How many say, I want to believe for a great year? That's where my heart is at. That there would uh, come a level of normalcy that we could kind of come back and, and fellowship with each other and, you know, have coffee. And I think that's so healthy, isn't it? That we're relating to one another. I, I believe that's the way God designed us as human beings. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you today that there's a kind of life that you're looking for. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would uh, shape that within us. Help us, Lord, to respond to your amazing mercy and grace. Lord, help us to be covenant keepers, that we've made a commitment to you. Help us to live it out. <clears throat> help us to experience, Lord, the benefits that you want to give to us, Lord. And as we're going to hear, when we live a righteous life, so many good things happen, not only for ourselves, but for so many people around us. And I ask, Lord, that you would empower us in 22 to be that kind of people in our community, that we would make a difference wherever we are, wherever we go, whoever we talk to, whoever we meet, whoever we see, whoever we're reaching out to. Lord, use our lives for your honor, for your glory, and may we deposit your grace and blessing wherever we go. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name. And now I pray, Lord, open our hearts. May we hear the voice of the Spirit of God speaking through your word into our innermost being so that we'll not just be, we will be actually perceiving what we're seeing. We'll actually be understanding what we're hearing. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, how many know that uh, there are some classic movies around Christmas time? One of them is a movie called It's a Wonderful Life. How many have ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? You know, it's, I, I don't even know. They haven't even made a remake of that. Usually they make classic movies, they make remakes. But I, I like the old one, Jimmy Stewart. He plays the part of George Bailey, this ambitious young man who wants to travel the world, see the world, experience life. And um, just when he's about to embark on his journey, his father dies and he ends up having to take responsibility for the savings and loans, which is really a, a great blessing to his community. And in the story, of course, uh, George Bailey's uncle is a little bit of an absent-minded personality, and he's going over to pay a loan to the bank that support, you know, that they've owed money to, and it's run by this unscrupulous banker named Potter. He misplaces the money, doesn't pay the account. Potter finds the money, doesn't say anything. It brings a crisis to the savings and loan. George is in a quandary, doesn't know what to do. He survived many other crises, but this time it just seems to be beyond him. And he decides he's had enough. He's in a great state of despair. He's crying out. But God has heard his cry. And even though he jumps off the bridge, there's a lot of other people praying for George because, you know, he feels like, you know, they're going to see him as maybe where the money, irresponsible, didn't take care of the problem, however it came about. And uh, God hears his prayer. Angel jumps into the water, fishes him out of the river. And, but George sees what, his life, uh, what life would have been like in his community if he had not lived. And so in this movie, 
It, it really is uh, Frank Capra trying to give an insight into the value of one person's life. That's great. Not each life matters. But I, I, would, I would say that we should understand that from a biblical perspective, that every one of us has been created for this hour, for a purpose, that God you know, knows what he's doing, and we have to believe that, and that our lives are meaningful, and they are significant. And the more we walk with God, the more we understand that you know, we don't have to travel the world to be significant. We don't have to do these great big things that people in our society think are heroic or dynamic or exciting. Sometimes you know, just being faithful and doing what God's called us to do, that's a very significant life. We're gonna see that as we're looking through this passage of scripture from the book of Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, uh, I think a lot of people today struggle with a sense of insignificance. Let me know that's true. They feel like, you know, what does matter? Life, what's, what's it really accomplishing? But I want to just say that in the bigger scheme of things, God sees it a lot differently than we do. And I think that's why we need to take a look at this chapter. Uh, in chapter 5 of Jeremiah, we come to understand that the way we live affects our community way beyond what we would understand. I don't know if you realize that your life is affecting the lives of people around you. It's having an impact. Uh, and that's so true. We just, you know, I know Donovan uh, just passed away here and we had a funeral this Wednesday and it was amazing how many people's lives that he had touched. And I believe that's true for every one of our lives. We're constantly affecting the lives of people around us. And so I'm gonna take a look here at four elements that I think brings God's favor into our communities and helps us to live the kind of life that God is looking for. And the first one is really responding to God's challenge. I think God wants to challenge our lives and we need to hear this challenge. And the challenge is, are we living in a righteous and honest manner before God and others? That's a great question, isn't it? How am I living my life? And you know, do I see a connection between how I live and the outcomes of my life or the consequences of what I'm doing? Can I see there's a connection there? And God here is talking to Jeremiah and he's challenging him to find one righteous person to spare a city that is doomed for destruction. It's a very powerful statement. So I want to hear God's basically challenge to Jeremiah. It's framed here in Jeremiah chapter five and verse one. He says, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around and consider, search through her squares, if you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, and I will forgive the city. Now isn't that a great thought? I mean, God is saying, if you can find one righteous person, I'm gonna change the destination of this community. I'm gonna change the outcome, the consequences that are about to befall the community. And I believe that you know, we can look at this Old Testament passage and say, well, how does that apply to us today? But let me go to a New Testament passage that I think speaks along the same line. And God is still looking for this kind of a life. He's looking for a righteous kind of a life. He's, he's looking for us to walk honestly and truthfully before him and before others. And Paul, in writing to Timothy, He's challenging him in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to literally uh, flee from contention and strife. If you read that chapter, it's very interesting. You know, uh, verses 1 down through verse 11, it talks about that. You know, a lot of people contend about a lot of things that are really not that important. And we, there's a lot of strife that's generated that's really unnecessary in our lives. We don't realize it at the time, but it's true. He says, don't do that kind of stuff. He says, matter of fact, don't even be eager for securing finances. Don't make money your goal in life. 
You know, I think money is a byproduct, not a goal. You know, I think we should do what God's will, we should work, we should help others, but I think that's a byproduct. As a matter of fact, he says to Timothy there, but you men of God or woman of God or child of God, flee from all of this and pursue certain things. So what are the things that we should be targeting our life towards? Well, I think we need to pursue, and it says it there, righteousness. Live the right kind of life. Do the right kinds of things. He says godliness. In other words, our life should be like God's. We should learn how to be forgiving. We should learn how to be generous. We should learn how to be loving. He says a life of faith. Learn how to trust God. A life of love. I've already said that. A life of endurance. How many know endurance is important? You know, it's interesting. The Bible says they that endure to the end shall be saved. I think that's part of knowing if we're really a follower of God or not. There's an endurance. And I think in a time of testing, that's when we actually develop endurance. How many know that's true? And right now, as we're going through these last few years, this is a whole developmental process called developing endurance. How are you doing? Are you guys enduring? Are you getting through it? Or how are you handling it? You see, I think that's important. We have to have the right attitude, the right spirit. That all teaches us these amazing lessons. And then, uh, and, and being gentle. Wow, you know, sometimes we get upset. And we're not so gentle. We're frustrated, we're angry, upset, uptight. And God's saying, no, no, learn how to trust me. Learn how to really trust me. And when you really trust God, you don't have to feel like you're in control. You can actually know that God is in control. It's a really freeing experience. So we can walk in gentleness. Then he says, fight the good fight of the faith. How many realize that that we're actually in a battle? This is a, a spiritual conflict. You know, this is not, earth is not our final destination, folks. Can I tell you that? We're on a journey. And it's a battle all the way to the end. And then you get to the end, and then you're no longer having to fight the good fight of faith. There's all kinds of temptations. There's all kinds of things to pull us off track or distract us or move us away from the goal. But no, we got to stick to it. And then he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So let's be true to what we've confessed before God. But you know, God is pointing out to Jeremiah here in Jeremiah 5.2. He says, there's a lot of people that talk the talk. They just don't walk the walk. I'm going to know that's true. And he says here, although they say as surely as the Lord lives, still they're swearing falsely. What do you mean? Well, they're basically, you know, they're, they're more concerned with, uh, well, they're not being honest about what they're saying. They're living a life of duplicity. It's not authentic. And God's looking for authenticity in our lives. So what is God saying to Jeremiah? That if there's one person who's living righteously, he's going to spare the entire city. You know what the tragedy is? We know from history, Jeremiah couldn't find one person. The city was destroyed. How many go, that's tragic. What a tragedy. Hmm, interesting. Walter Brueggemann says, Yahweh is desperately seeking a way of, of forgiveness. In other words, you know God is so eager to forgive us. He's always looking for a way to do it. He's willing, he's yearning, but he will not engage in cheap grace. And I think we have to understand that. Even though God wants to do, you know, bless us. How many know sometimes as a parent, you really want to bless your kid, but if they're misbehaving, this isn't the time to do it, right? This is going to give them the wrong messaging. You don't want to do that then. Uh, there has to be a turning to God, a repentant heart. And that's what we're going to discover in our text, that there's, there's actually no evidence of this occurring. Jeremiah's looking for this person who will model the kind of life that God is looking for, but he can't find that person. 
And that kind of brings us to another episode earlier in the life of the Bible. In the book of Genesis, we go back to that story where Abraham is talking to God. And remember how Abraham uh, is actually negotiating with God because God reveals to him he's about ready to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that story? And so he's in this negotiation, and Abraham is concerned because his nephew Lot is living in Sodom, and Abraham doesn't want him to be destroyed with all of the other people. So he frames an interesting question to God. Will a righteous God destroy the righteous with the wicked? And, you know, listen to what God says. No, I'm not going to do that. Well, Abraham says, well, if you can find 50 righteous people in those cities, you're going to spare it, right? God says, absolutely. Abraham continues. He said, what about 40? Yeah, I'll spare him for 40. What about 30? Yep. 20? Yes. 10? Yes. And you know what the sad part was? There wasn't 10 righteous people. But to show you how merciful God is and he won't destroy the righteous, he actually sent those two angels down and they pulled Lot, the righteous man, out of the city. So we know God is a savior. We know God is concerned about the righteous. We know that. The problem is, are we righteous? Interesting question. Robert Davidson brings out an interesting insight. He says this. It's as if God is now saying to Jeremiah, it seems to me that Jerusalem is worse than pagan Sodom. Prove me wrong if you can by producing just one righteous person. Isn't that interesting? You see, you know, when, when we think of wickedness, I mean, one of the expressions that come to mind, it's as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know what? Here in this time, in Jeremiah's hour, the city of Jerusalem, where God's temple was, where people were in covenant relationship with God, was more perverse and more wicked than the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many are going, I'm shocked? Is that a shocking statement to make? Here were people who knew Torah. Here were people who knew the covenant. Here were people who knew God and, uh, in his ways, but yet were not walking in them. And so it was a, a heartbreak to God and to the prophet Jeremiah. But let me move on to the second element that brings God's favor to communities. It's a proper confession. And what I mean is, do we agree with God's assessment of our lives? Or do we harden our heart and reject God's standards for our lives? We have to make a choice. Jeremiah is unable to find a single person in that entire city that would meet God's criteria to spare the city. God is thereby justified in allowing destruction to come to Jerusalem. So Jeremiah goes out. He, he, he probably thinks when he starts this, there's got to be at least one guy there, right? And so we read in the next few verses, in verse 3 and 4, he says, Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. God's, God does look for truth. You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. I thought, oh, these are only the poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. So Jeremiah begins with those he calls the poor. Now, this is not an economic title. He's not talking about those people in the social status that are economically poor. He's talking about the people who have spiritual poverty. They're, they're poor in the sense that they don't know the way of the Lord. So Jeremiah goes, oh man, there's so many people in the city, they should know the right way, but they are totally ignorant of the ways of God. They're just, they're, they're just poor in this realm. There's gotta be somebody that really knows what's going on here. Uh, Old Testament scholar John Thompson says, who then are the poor that Jeremiah had in mind? Well, the reference may well be to the citizens of Jerusalem who were insensitive to God's chastising and unable or unwilling to read the signs of the times because of their preoccupation with their own affairs. And these people are just living for themselves. That's what he's saying here. 
He says, there was no intention on their part to submit their lives and business dealings to God's scrutiny. They hardly believed that God would even care about how they lived. God was not in their thoughts or in their hearts, although they took his name constantly on their lips. So it must have been a shock to Jeremiah to discover that despite Josiah's reformation, so like this is the context of the historical background. This is happening maybe at the latter end of Josiah's reign, who was a godly king, who was a reformer. But even though there was reformation happening on the outside, you know, they were getting rid of false worship and you know, cleaning up the temple and all the rest of it, what was lacking was there was no inner transformation of the human heart. There was no real inward change. There was no real revival. It was kind of just an outward uh, change, kind of a, a moral change in a sense. You know, it's kind of the idea that Jesus gives us when he uses this parable in Luke chapter 11. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. How many know New Year's is a time when people make resolutions? Isn't that true? And a lot of people, not just Christians, a lot of people are making resolutions. And some of them are moral in nature. Some of them say, I'm going to stop doing this bad thing and I'm going to do this other, you know. But Listen to what happens here. Jesus says, when it arrives, this evil spirit finds the house swept clean and put in order. So all of that is uh, addressed, but then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. How many of you know sometimes people do all kinds of stuff, you try to get themselves straightened out, but then eventually, because they're doing it in their own human energy and strength, you know, they're not really replacing it with something greater than what they're displacing. You have to have something greater than yourself. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And that's what uh, this uh, scholar is talking about. You know, there has to be the presence of the living God displacing the wrong things in our lives. We have to displace it with the power and the presence of God, doing what God would have us do because we have the power to do that. Well, then Jeremiah turns to those who are leaders. He figures, well, listen. I get why these guys don't understand, but let, let me go to the priests. Let me go to the people in, in, that are political leaders that you're supposed to be reading Torah to. They're supposed to be following this as they're leading their country. And what, is, what does he find out? He finds out he's, he's more deeply disappointed because these people now, even though they know what the law says, are pushing it away from themselves. They're actually knowingly doing the wrong thing. How many know when you don't know to do right, it's a sin, but the consequences are still there, but maybe not as severe as those people who are knowingly doing what's wrong, and now they're caught. That's a far greater thing. Listen to what it says in verse 5. So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God, but with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bounds. What's he saying? These people were actively acting against God and his authority. These were the people who were breaking the covenant because they wanted to be free from God's moral requirements. You know, it kind of, it's expressed this way in the Psalms. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. One of the things that sin produces is a desire to be autonomous from God. How many know that's true? Right from the very beginning, the Garden of Eden. What, what were Adam and Eve doing? They were running from God. They were hiding from God. They want nothing to do with God. And we see that in our culture today. We see a lot of people 
want nothing to do with God. And it has a lot to do with it. They don't want God to be sovereign over their lives. They want to be autonomous of God. They want to be independent of God. They want to be their own God. They want to make their own decisions. They want to live life their way. And there's a consequence to that. And we read that in verse 6. Therefore, a lion from the forest will attack them. A wolf from the desert will ravish them. A leper will lie in wait near their towns to tear to pieces any who venture up. For their rebellion is great and their backsliding is many. So here, what do we have? We have a picture here, which I think is symbolic. These wild animals, these are predatory animals. You know, if, if, a, if an oxen breaks its chain and goes out away from where it's supposed to be, these predators are already there and they're looking for lunch. You know, that oxen's gonna be in trouble. They're gonna be tackling these, these ravish, ravishous beasts. And I'll just say this, that when you and I break, you know, uh, the fetters of doing what God's calling us to do, what are we left with is the consequences of our sin. And it usually ravishes our lives. It, do, it just brings such havoc and destruction in our lives. Let me move to the third element. And that's to understand God's case against us. What I mean by this is, if you can think of these Old Testament prophets, what are they? They're kind of like God's legal counsel. <laughs> you know, God created a covenant, and there was God's part, and then there was the, our part as human beings. And so God goes, if you do this, I will do all these good things, but if you do the wrong things, these are the consequences. And so Israel kept refusing to do what she was required to do, so God brings these prophets on the scene who literally are, it's like case law. They're stating the case against the nation of Israel. And so are we, as in, in 21st century uh, Canada, are we open to God to search our hearts and to point out to us what needs to change in our lives? Are we willing to confess that there are places in our lives where we have failed? Do we really understand how God can justify those who are guilty and the price it takes for that to occur. Because how many know that's a, that's a powerful thing to justify the guilty? There's a cost to that. And God pays the cost by dying on the cross for us. And I always say to people, you know, in life there's nothing that's free. You go, wait a minute, I got this for free. I said, yeah, it was free to you, but someone paid for it. And we need to understand everything in life has a price tag to it. Someone is paying the price. And when it comes to forgiveness, God paid the price for our freedom. God paid the price for our forgiveness. We need to understand that. So now it begins with a question here in verse 7, and he ends with a question in verse 9. He says this uh, in verse 7, why should I forgive you? Why, why is God obligated to forgive us? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I supplied all of their needs, yet they committed adultery and they thronged to the house of prostitutes. They are well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for another man's wife. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? So he's making his case. Now, this is interesting. He's using an interesting metaphor here, this well-fed, uh, lusty stallion. Now, we need to realize that probably one of the great blessings, one of the great temptations, sorry, in life is when we're deeply blessed. We don't realize it at the time, but that's a dangerous state to be in. As a matter of fact, remember Moses, when he was telling the Israelites when they were going in to possess the land, he said, now listen, when God really starts blessing your lives, don't forget God. Isn't that interesting? A warning. Don't forget God in the midst of all the blessings. Now, we know from 
archaeology that most of these Canaanite religions practiced all kinds of immorality in their worship. There were fertility rites, and so there was a lot of immorality. Okay? But I think Walter Brueggemann shares another concept that I think is very interesting. He says, the image of lusty stallion surely alludes to sexual infidelity and perversion, but it's also a metaphor for shameless self-assertion. Judah is full of herself. Horses in the Old Testament are regularly found only among those who, like kings, who have the power to assert themselves, basically. They assert their power and seize initiative for their own lives. Hmm. This same fullness of self-sufficiency leads to moral disorientation. And if you want to understand what's happening in our culture today, this is it. People are self-sufficient, and it's led to moral disorientation. People don't know right from wrong anymore. Anybody notice that? They don't understand. Also, it leads to religious self-destruction because people start mocking God. He goes on to say, Yahweh is now trivialized so that he's mocked. Jerusalem imagines that it's immune from God's governance or threat. In other words, you know, if you talk to people today, if you told them that God was going to judge their lives, they would mock and scoff at you and say you're out, out of touch with reality. Because in some of their minds, there is no God. That's where they've gotten to. Isn't that true? How many know what I'm saying? I'm explaining the way in the nature of people are. And this is what we're, we're seeing here. I think, uh, so in their minds, this idea of being warned by these prophets is like, you know, you guys are just hot air that are talking like this. Let's take a look at what God says to the people here through Jeremiah. He says, now go through her vineyards and ravish them. But do not destroy them completely. Strip her of her branches, for these people do not belong to the Lord. Well, that's a very strong statement. I thought, well, these people do belong to God. But yeah, but they've, not, they've broken their covenant, and they've rejected God. He goes on to say, the people of Israel and the people of Judah have been utterly unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord. They said he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. Uh, the prophets are but wind, and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. Woo, that's a strong message. You know, what, what's he basically saying? They're, they're saying, you know, God will never do anything bad to us. Now, I want to just bring something to our attention, just kind of arrest our minds a little bit, because when we've been living in the 20th century here, we're now 20 years or 21 years in, completed in the new century. Think about what's been preached in the last number of years. You know, God is so good and so loving. Nothing bad will ever happen to us. We're just living in this false sense of security. Meanwhile, you know, there's a lot of self-assertion. We're taking God on our terms. We're, we're saying that we believe in God, but we're not living with authenticity, honesty, and truthfulness. You see, God is looking for a certain kind of life. You know, you and I are in a covenant relationship with God. And so it's not you and I do what we want. It's you and I need to know what God wants and do what he wills, and walk in his ways. Otherwise, there's consequences, and, we've, and we're seeing consequences all the time. You know, like I said in the early service, I've been a pastor for nearly 40 years. I've had no one ever come to me and say, you know, I really regret serving God for the last 40 years. It's been terrible. I've never heard that yet, but I've had a lot of people come to me and say, you know, I turned my back on God. I lived my own life, 
and my life be, just became a shambles. And there was been a lot of regret in that kind of a life. And I've heard that too often. Listen to what God affirms. He says, listen, you know, I've been telling these prophets to say these things. And the reason why God doesn't immediately act on his warnings, why was he not, not do that? Because he's not willing that any should perish. God is very long-suffering. God is showing us patience and forbearance, hoping that we'll come to our senses and change our minds and get our act together, right? And turn to him and repent. You know, he goes on to say uh, in verse 14 here, therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says, because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire, and these people, the wood it consumes. Now, that's a pretty graphic picture. You know, I could just see Jeremiah, you know, speaking, and fire's coming out of his mouth, and the people listening to him are like wood, and they're just caught, they're all ablaze. Now, you know that's an image, right? <clears throat> what he's basically saying is what Jeremiah is preaching to you guys is gonna happen, and you're gonna experience this terrible destruction. And, you know, most of us have never lived during a war. You know, most of us have never been in conflict. Most of us have never seen a city level. Most of us have never been on that end. I can't even imagine the destructive force of something like that. Can you imagine what it was like when Babylon came along and totally destroyed the temple? The thing that they all said, God will never destroy his house. And God totally did because he said, listen, the glory of God left a long time ago. What a challenging thing. He goes on to say here in verse 15, people of Israel declares the Lord, I'm bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. They will devour your harvest and food. They will devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds. They will devour your vines and fig trees. Sounds like they're gonna just eat them all up. you know. But what he's basically saying is, look, it's not necessarily he's going to destroy them, like kill every single person. What he's saying is he's going, to, he's going to literally allow that nation to consume you and put you into subjugation. You're going to be under their thumb. You're going to be, uh, no longer you will have the freedoms that you once had. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trusted. Now, it's interesting, and I, and I like how Walter Brueggemann shares this idea about the fortified cities. He said, the end of these cities really means the end of organized life and the exposure of urban life to a variety of threats that the walls had, up to that point, staved off. He said, urban life is under assault and is sure to end, bringing down with it all the institutional and supportive support, structural supports for public life. You know, there's a lot of things we don't understand. Do you realize if all of our order came to an end right now, all the institutions started collapsing, we would be in terrible trouble. I don't know if you know, we'd have anarchy pretty quick. And a lot of people don't get that. They don't understand that this is a very fragile state we're in. Do you know that? We're in a very fragile state. And, you know, with, with the destruction of the walls, the coming of social chaos is not far behind. And we're beginning to see that. I, I believe the walls are coming down. We're going to see that in a moment here, what we're talking about. Yet even in the midst of all of this, God still wants to show mercy. It, it, it amazes me how merciful God is. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Yet even in those days, declare the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. I mean, he could. He had every reason to. He was warning them of it, but eventually he exiles them, which, which is, 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 is a judgment tempered with mercy because they have a chance to come back and have a redo. And that's powerful. So he is a God of the second chance. We need to hear that. I think we need to understand that. 
And when the people asked, why has the Lord our God done, this, done all of this to us? Isn't that interesting? Uh, why did God allow these bad things to happen to us? That's what they're saying. You can tell them, as you've forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. In other words, you serve these foreign gods that came from foreigners, I'm gonna move you to their location. You'll continue to worship their gods there, but not in this land. This is my land. This is the land I gave you. This is the promised land. I'm exiling you. I'm cutting you off. Powerful. The question is raised in times of discipline. Why has the Lord done this? Well, if we're disobeying God, there's a consequence. That's why. Tremper Longman says, after all, the people likely grew up learning of their special relationship with Yahweh, and the judgment will throw that relationship into question. They suffer because they betrayed God by worshiping other gods. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Eat a little water. You know, I think in our culture today, <clears throat> we've heard so much good preaching on the grace of God. And I believe in it. I believe that God ultimately <clears throat> is a God of grace. But I also believe God will judge. And I think that part of the equation has fallen off. We've lost a sense that, you know, we can, if we do the wrong thing, there's going to be no consequence. We've got to stop thinking that way. There is a consequence, and there always wills be one. Which brings us to the final element, <clears throat> is the realization of the consequence. <clears throat> In essence, we need to understand <clears throat> that sin, sorry, <clears throat> deprives us of good. Can I just say this? God wants to do good to us, but when we sin, it deprives him of what he wants to do for us. That's so sad. <clears throat> you know, think of it, I'm a parent, I want to do good to my kids, but if they're disobeying, if I do good to them right at that moment, sometimes you do do good to them in, in spite of their sin. But eventually you go, I just can't keep doing good to them because they never understand as a consequence. You follow what I'm saying? So God finally says, I got to do something to shake this up. I got to, it's a little more drastic here. You're going to have to understand. We need a proper understanding of two things, how good and great God is, and how awful sin is. We need to get that in our heads. Learn those lessons. Listen to what he says in verse 20. Announce this to the descendants of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people. You have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, but you do not hear. In other words, you're just, you don't get it. You're not, you're not understanding. He said, should you not fear me, respect God, reverence him? declares the Lord, should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. He's using an illustration, an analogy. We all, we've all been to the ocean, I'm sure, and seen these waves rolling in. It's beautiful. He says, but these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. What's he saying? He's saying, even though I have set up boundaries in creation that aren't violated, and I have set boundaries in morality, but you violated them. And our culture today, we're really good at violating the moral boundaries. How many say that's true? 
We act as if there's no roadblock. We just go zipping right on through those things. And what we don't realize is it's producing harm to ourselves and to others. He goes, they do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God who gives autumn and spring rains and season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. In other words, we're doing this even though God's been so good to us and he's so blessed us. It's amazing how good God is to us. Aren't you glad God is faithful? Aren't you glad there's a stability with God? Aren't you glad that even though, you know, people can behave poorly, the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. In other words, God's good to all people. You know, that doesn't mean he's always endorsing what people are doing just because he's being faithful, because he's a faithful God. But then he goes on to say, your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. You know, there's times when God now withholds good things because he's trying to get our attention. He says, your wrongdoings have kept God's goodness, his blessings, his faithfulness into our lives away from us. And he's basically saying, the reason why we're deprived of this good is because of what we're doing. That's what sin does. Sin is a deprivation. It deprives us of the goodness of God. Isn't that sad? That's a tragedy, I think. So what is God revealing through Jeremiah? Well, I think that we have a distorted lens sometimes. He's saying that we're seeing, but we're not perceiving. We're hearing, but we're not, we're not understanding. We're not responding in an appropriate way. Walter Brueggemann says, the moral failure of Israel derives from its practical atheism. What does that mean? It means that they'll tell you that they believe in God, but their lifestyle is a denial of it. And we see that a lot. A lot of people tell me they're Christians, but their lifestyle is telling me they're not a Christian. It's their behavior that God is, God is saying, hey, if you, really, if you really believe me, if you really trust me, it'll be reflected in how you live. True, of course. He says, Israel is indicted for her sins, her wickedness, her treachery. The result is that they're, they're great, rich, fat, and sleek. That is, they're satiated and self-sufficient. Remember, I've already pointed out to us, you know, when we're, when we have, we're on the top of our game, we tend to forget God. So I, I started thinking about this. I said, okay, how can I really bring this home to us so that we'll get it in a way that maybe we haven't thought about it before? <clears throat> So Israel exploits and abuses the particularity of the offenses that they judge unjustly. They exploit orphans and fail to defend the needy people. In other words, they're living for themselves rather than helping those that need to be helped. So today, I think one of our biggest challenges is with technology. You say, what do you mean? I think it's one of the expressions of our humanistic sovereignty over our lives. In other words, instead of looking to God as as people in North America, we're actually looking to technology which is a creation that we've created as human beings. God has given us a creative ability. We've created these things, and then we look to what we created to save ourselves. That's what I mean when I say we're looking to technology. And it's an expression of secular humanism. Rather than seeing our creativity as a gift from God, which is accountable to God, to be stewarded before God, no, we've rejected God and see humanity as our savior. So we're trying to play God in every realm of life, and you can see it. It's seen from such things as how we live, what we do, and ultimately how we die. And now we're at the stage where we're deciding when to die. How many know that's true? It's amazing what we're doing. We're playing all kinds of games, and I I feel like, you know, sometimes we can all do this. Whenever we tell 
you know, whenever we're saying, I'm not going to look to God to determine what to do, I'm playing God. Think about it. Our society has taken matters into our own hands, and God is no longer seen as the one we seek guidance from, nor do we walk in his ways. In other words, I'll do my own thank you very much. And that's practical atheism. You know, we'll say intellectually, yeah, I'm a Christian, but really our lives are lived as if God doesn't exist by the way we live. What we see in verses 20 to 25 is the power of our creator. We see how God set those boundaries, and yet we're moving through them. We've trampled moral boundaries, which wreak havoc in our society. Tremper Longman reminds us that in ancient mythologies, the sea actually represents the power of chaos, but God is the one who is firmly pushing back chaos to allow the order of creation to exist. Further, God is the provider of life, and he's the one that gives the reins. He's the one that makes the provisions in our lives. You go, oh, yeah, but I go to work, Pastor. Yeah, well, if you didn't have the health, you wouldn't be going to work. If you didn't have the job, you wouldn't be going to work. It's real simple. God's the provider. Let's take a look at who's ultimately doing this. This reference is prim- primarily germane since the people of God were tempted to worship a God like Baal, who was a storm deity, which in a sense their sins now had deprived them of good like their crops because they were worshiping a false god. That was problematic. While creation was under the control of the creator, here Jeremiah is basically saying, we are not under God's moral restraint. We're doing our own thing. That's what we're hearing. So, so what are some of the specific sins that are wrecking havoc in our society? Well, Jeremiah 5.26, among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch people. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They've become rich and powerful. They have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limits. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fathers. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And then he says, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. So what is the horrible and shocking thing? The prophets prophesy lies, and the priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? What's he saying? He's saying, look, you guys are so busy ripping each other off, and you, you, are, you like that. You like the system, even including the religious system of the hour. You know, and I, and I notice in, in, in church life, here's where we're at. You know, we can get to the point where, you know, if we don't like something, we just go someplace else where we'd rather hear this than that. See, I, I'm, where I'm at personally is, what does the Bible say? What is God trying to communicate? I want to hear that. And if it's, not, if it's not making me comfortable and there's something I need to change in my life, then by the grace of God, help me to have that change. That's how I think. And I think that's the correct way. I think the Bible is designed to evaluate our lives. We're not here to evaluate the Bible. The Bible's here to evaluate us. It's a mirror to show us where we're living. Now, I want, you, I want to just stop here for a minute and just say, think about the question that God raised to Jeremiah. I'm going to close with this. Could there be found one righteous person in order to spare the city? And what was the answer? No. The city was destroyed. How many go, that's amazing. Is that shocking? How many say it's a shocking statement? These are people who should have known God. Isn't that a shocking? How many say you're shocked by this? I'm shocked. 
you know. But here's what I'm going to say. Unfortunately, at that moment in Israel's history, Jerusalem was completely given over to injustice and selfishness. But here's something even more shocking. That's not just the condition of Jerusalem. That's the condition of humanity at every time. You see, the scriptures declare there's not one that's righteous. No, not one. Except, what, who could turn away the judgment of God? God goes, okay, I'll fix the problem. He came to earth and lived as a human being perfectly. The one righteous man who turns away the judgment of God. You know who that is? Jesus. Jesus came to earth, thankfully, without sin. He has dealt with the integrity and honesty and truthfulness in every situation. I like what Philip Ryken writes. He says, he gave an honest presentation of his, uh, of his deity and uh, performing miracles to improve his, prove his divine power over creation. Jesus Christ dealt honestly with his disciples, not hiding from them the necessity of his own suffering and death. Jesus also dealt honestly with sinners, like the woman at the well, exposing their secrets and inviting them to trust in him. And Jesus dealt honestly with his enemies, like the Pharisees, confronting the enmity in their hearts. There was nothing false or deceptive in anything Jesus said or did. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Uh, Jeremiah was told to look for one man who seeks the truth. Jesus not only sought the truth, he is the truth. In verses 23 to 26, we find one of the most striking and dramatic prophetic visions of the Old Testament. Thus, when the disciples wanted to know the way to eternal life, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As a matter of fact, he's the, here's the only way that God can justify us, the unjust, is through the one righteous man. That's Jesus Christ. Let's stand this morning. I think a number of ideas have been streaming through this message today. God is looking for a person to live a certain kind of life. How many see that? God is looking for people to live a life that would please him. And when he looked over all of civilization, over all time, he could only find one man. That was Jesus. Now, that doesn't get us off the hook. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think I would say it this way. When you and I receive God's gift of Jesus, which is the gift of eternal life, that's the initiation of a brand new covenant. That, that's what we're getting to in the book of Jeremiah. The old covenant couldn't do it. And the reason why was God made a, a requirement for himself and for the people. God kept his part. Human beings failed in their part. And I would say no matter what, we, we, we have a tendency to fail. We just do. It's called sin. But here's the beautiful part. Jesus, when we put our trust in him, he can justify us. He can be the one that when the Father looks down on earth and says, I see the one man. I can spare the whole world because of what Jesus did. I can spare the whole world judgment because of what Jesus did. The only problem is you and I have to accept what Jesus did. That's a huge step. A lot of people are going, no, I'm going to be autonomous. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live life on my terms. 
Can I just say, there is a creator. I know we, we want to deny that, but there is a creator, and we're all accountable to him. We're all going to answer to him one day for our lives. So here's what I would say to us. We should take God's offer up. We should receive his salvation. We should receive the Savior. We should allow God to change our hearts and move us away from this sense of autonomy, this independence from God, that you and I would move towards a deep dependency on God, and that it would actually bring a freedom into our lives to become the person God created us and designed us to be and to become. I love that. It's, a, it's an invitation to us. So God isn't here trying to condemn us. God is finding every which way to save us and to forgive us and to bless us and not deprive us of good because of our sin. But we have to respond to him. We have to say to him, yes, I want you, Jesus. And when we do that, transformation begins to happen. God changes our hearts. And I want to say this is so important because, you know, we grow up in a church. Many of, maybe many of you have been growing up in church, and sometimes we've, we've heard these messages over and over and over again. But we're like the Israelites. We're hearing, but we're not hearing. We're not getting it. We're not perceiving what's being said. But today I'm praying that you'll get something. And here's what I want you to understand. Information alone does not save you. It's application that changes you. You have to open your heart and say, okay, God, if this is all true, which the scriptures are reiterating it over and over and over again, I need to open my heart to you and say, okay, I need to have my own personal relationship with you. I need to have an encounter with you. I need to be moved from just an intellectual understanding to a transformed heart where now my heart desires move away from this autonomous posture to this dependency on God. And I would even argue that there are Christians who, you know, that, that at one point gave their life to Christ, but they're still living in a state of autonomy. They're still trying to do their own thing. And it's a state of rebellion. That's what I'm trying to get at. And you and I need to humble ourselves before God. And God is saying, would you stop fighting me? You're making your life far harder than it ought to be. You're, you're fighting with God. That's the wrong battle. You need to yield to God and allow him to bring his goodness into your life and his forgiveness and allow his plan and will to be accomplished, not your own design. You see, you're not going to beat the plan God has for you. He's way smarter than me and you. How many know that's true? He's just so much smarter. He knows what he's doing. And I'm saying it's worth giving everything up and total surrender to him. And you know, I was reading the story of Abraham. That's exactly what happened in Genesis 22 when he had to offer up his son. And God said, now I know that there's nothing in your life that's before me. There's no idol. There's nothing you're looking to. And believe me, that was a lot for Abraham to do because that was his whole understanding of his legacy. And he said, I just give everything to God. And at that moment, God says, because you have done this thing, I will bless you. I will bless you. And we go, oh, good, God's going to bless me. But listen to how he says it. I will bless you so that you and your seed will bless others. It's not about me being blessed. Yes, we are blessed. But it's about God making us a blessing. So how can I live a life that's, that, that God is looking for? How can I live a life that's pleasing to him? It's when I open my heart to him, receive him in his fullness, and allow his will to be done in and through my life, 
then you and I become a blessing to other people. How many here say, that's what I want. I want to be a channel in 22 of being God's amazing blessing to people around me. I want to have that kind of an influence and an impact, you know. I want to see people's lives change because I was on this planet. There was something that happened in my life that began to affect change in the lives of others. Is that where you're at today? Just raise your hand if that's you. I think it's good, you know, we acknowledge this before God. Yes, that's me, God, that's why I want to live. And maybe you're here, sometimes our young people, they grow up in our church and then they, they hear this stuff, but they never make this commitment. And you've got to personalize it. It's got to be your faith, not your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith. You have to have that encounter with God. You have to surrender your autonomy to God. It has to be about His will and not your own thing. And if you can lay that down, I will make a guarantee you will never regret that decision because God will begin to reveal to you His plan and purposes in a powerful way. And if that's you today, there's that contact slip in the pew. There's that contact slip on the, on the computer screen. Fill it out and say, yes, I'm saying yes to Jesus. I'm surrendering my autonomy, my self-will. I'm yielding to him in absolute surrender so God can save me and transform me. And if you do that, I guarantee you, your life won't be the same. I just, I know that for a fact. I've experienced it. And I've seen it in many other lives. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're here challenging us to live the life that will please you. You're challenging us today. You're looking for a life, a certain kind of life. And I just pray, help us to live that kind of life that you're looking for, Lord. Help us to live that kind of life that you're looking for, an honest life, an authentic life, a, 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 a righteous life a blameless life. And Lord, I just pray this year that you will use us way beyond our comprehension. You're gonna use us because we've yielded ourselves to you. You're gonna bless our lives. You're gonna do good to us, but you're gonna do good through us to others. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave.